I'm Kate. I'm Callie. We're two friends who met in an early modern history MA. Welcome to the Six Queens podcast, where queenship reigns supreme. have made it to the end of another series and we are going to end this with a look at Catherine Parr's early life and marriages because I know she gets thrown to the end a lot of the time um, because a lot of people don't realize or if they do realize they don't know much about it that she was married twice before she was married to Henry and then in deciding to marry Henry was actually caught up in a little bit of a love triangle. She had to choose between Henry and another suitor who I'm sure we all know, and we talked about it before on the show with Becoming Elizabeth, um, that she eventually fell in love with Thomas Seymour and then married him and he became her fourth husband after Henry. Yeah, she's not too far behind him in terms of how many husbands she ended up having, although they did meet decidedly less famous ends well apart from henry and thomas but like the first two had decidedly less sticky ends and just died of natural causes spoiler alert she did not kill any of her husbands they're fairly run-of-the-mill like marriages like you said like they, they were they were arranged marriages and there was at the very least for the first two there was definitely uh from what we know, but kind of pockets of respect that, you know, she shared with her husband and if not fondness. I think the thing that I think we, we find hardest with stuff like this is the idea of not necessarily marrying for love. And I still think that's a bit of a strange concept when we when we think about the marriages of like the 16th century, especially those of socially like upwards leaning women. So kind of like gentry upwards. That's going to be the theme of the day, though, is like Catherine's duty and how she makes the best of her situation, and I think comes out of it with some general affection for all these families she gains. If you need a refresher, I know we talked about it, oh, the whole other end of this series, but Catherine was born to two courtiers. Her parents were very much involved in court. Her father knew Henry VIII very well, was a very trusted person in the king's company, and then her mother served in the households of Catherine of Aragon for a very long time. So Catherine was born in London while her parents were serving at court. And I think because of that, of her parents' social awareness, they called in a lot of favors and they made a lot of connections that Catherine benefited from. Her father died when she was still fairly young. So it was actually her mother who kind of took on the role of negotiating marriages for all of her children, for the three par children. And this included Catherine, because marriage is how, for women, definitely, it's how you gain social status, it's how you move up the ladder. So Catherine's mother was very concerned with, who are my children marrying? Is it going to help them get anywhere in life? And when you're at court, you can make those kinds of connections. You can start to talk to people who you know have eligible children. Completely. I mean, you see that really nicely with her first husband, um, Edward Burrow part of a very well-connected family from the gentry so much so that um I just when I when I discovered this fact I thought I had to share it because every time we talk about Henry VII right um that his great-great-grandfather was actually part of the Order of the Garter by uh made part of the Order of the Garter by Henry VII and as Kate just said you know his father was working at court and was a very very trusted member of Henry VIII so these aren't 
you know, minor gentry at all by any means. You know, they're very well established, uh, comes from a very well established family. And it's, he's quite interesting because I think for as well connected as his family is, we know actually very little about him um, and his character. You know, we know he was born around 1508, um, but even that's that's up for contention. In 1529, um, Edward and um, Catherine were married. And at the time, she was maybe about 17 and he potentially around the same age, if not probably latest, about 2021. 20, For a very long time, I had always had this image of Catherine's first husband being old. And we were talking about this before we started talking, because in doing research for this and in reading, you know, the newer biographies of Catherine, this theory has been completely debunked. We know that Catherine got married to somebody relatively her own age and that her husband, Edward, is often confused for his grandfather, Edward, the one of Henry VII fame. There was this narrative for years, and I think we were saying, like, it started out with Agnes Strickland, the Victorian yeah. historian, who was like, oh, poor Catherine, she had to marry all of these old men and blah, blah, blah. And now you read biographies. I mean, even Wikipedia, and you're like, oh, that's that's not true at all. She actually, her first <laughs> husband was somebody who was probably young and cute. It took me a minute to work it out because, like, I, I had to, I'll be honest, I had to reread it a couple of times. It, it's a good marriage. Like, reading about it, you're like, it totally makes sense that this would happen. Um, it mean, her mom did good work in arranging this marriage for her because, I mean, the Pars were not nobility. The Pars didn't have any titles. They, I mean, they worked at court and they were in with the family, but they weren't noble by any means. No, and, not at all. Yeah, so the fact that Catherine is marrying somebody who is on his way to having a title, in fact, during Catherine's marriage to Edward, Edward's grandfather dies and the title goes to the father. So it's like you're one step away from having a title now. Yeah, so the, these guys were actually Baron Borough. It's quite interesting, um, their, their family history. It's actually Edward's grandfather... Um, he is actually um, labelled as a lunatic in around 1510, which, for all intents and purposes, is kind of a 16th century shorthand for kind of identifying unde like undesirable social behaviours because it kind of covers a whole malady of things. And that is a conversation for a different day, unless we get down that rabbit hole. But it's often thought as well that um, Edward, so Catherine's husband, may have also been afflicted by some form of lunacy himself what exactly like we, we we don't know so there's often a question around edward's health like he's often described as being in, in frail health um, even in his early 20s whether or not that's his mental health or his physical health um and they were living up on the family lands up in the north so this family was based very in, heavily in like lincolnshire and this catherine has these connections to the north that we'll see you know get better over time but she's spending most of her time there and her husband is clearly sane enough to work if indeed there is such a condition um and and her the family too is is well regarded so around the time of Catherine's marriage um her father-in-law actually starts becoming involved with Anne Boleyn he's the Lord Chamberlain of Anne's household which is the person who's sort of uh, formally in charge of running her household and then he's one of the nobility who's invited to attend Anne's trial a few years later. So Catherine has these good connections. And even though she's living the life of kind of country 
Gentry, she's she's still there. She still knows people in the right places. Of all of these people, so right at Catherine's husband, Edward, and then his father, Thomas. Thomas is, I suppose, really, from what we know, a very stereotypical Tudor man in the sense that he's very patriarchal and he's very, he demands obedience at all times. He demands respect and, you know, so I think the idea of country gentry life wasn't necessarily as quaint as, you know, we might necessarily expect it to be. But like you said, in terms of her marriage, she was quite secure in that it was giving her a good standing. Except then when um, he died <laughs> and she became a widow for the first time. With Catherine becoming a widow, at this point she's only 21. Because the two, Edward and Catherine, didn't have any children, it put her in a bit of a precarious situation for a couple of minutes. Because the home that Edward and Catherine had been living in was actually a, a family home that was owned by Thomas. So as a widow, she actually had no rights to it. The, the Borough family actually ended up giving her a dowry. And that was the kind of the revenues for two manors, uh, one in Surrey and one in Kent. But beyond that, they had no more responsibility for her and she didn't have any ties to them. So she could completely walk away, which doesn't happen very often. I think she got a clean break. It's still, though, a period of so much uncertainty. Um, I think it's something that we don't have to talk about a lot, uh, but Catherine puts us in a perfect place to, is that marriage is the best place for a woman to be because it offers you that security and it's never more precarious than like in Catherine's situation where you're a widow and technically if you don't I mean if you don't have kids with him especially his family owes you nothing and Catherine's lucky because her own family seems like a very close-knit family um, and they're very supportive of each other and they're on the way up so her brother is becoming very tight at court and her sister too so she has a cushion on which to fall back still there's like this this limbo period where you're you've lost all sense of security and you don't really have an identity your identity has also been stripped from you you do have agency as somebody who has been married but you don't have any agency because your husband is no longer there to advocate for you the, the par family aren't established enough that she could just walk away and never get married again like she still needs that protection of her husband but luckily the transition happens pretty easily for Catherine I mean like you said she's still very young she's still of prime childbearing age so she's pretty desirable on the marriage market and it doesn't take much for her family to make another match for her and luckily she takes like one more step up on the ladder because she Instead of marrying somebody who's on their way to getting a title, you know, after a couple of deaths, she marries somebody with a title. Her second husband, who we've talked about before on the show, so bear with us for a little bit of a recap, is John Neville Baron Latimer. They get married in 1534. And this is where we start the narrative of Catherine being sort of the nurse and companion to older men because he is twice her age. If she's about 22 years old, then he's about 41. And he's on his third marriage at this point. He has two children with his first wife who are teenagers or, you know, adolescents by this point. So it's really likely that 
he was looking for somebody probably not to have more children with, but to be a companion for him, to be the lady of the manor, kind of run his household for him, and then also to be a mother and uh, supervise his children. It sounds like they needed some maternal guidance. So this is where we start to see that stereotype build up around Catherine, because if this sounds super familiar, a lot of people assume that she takes on this role for Henry as well. Henry aside, there's nothing out of the ordinary with her marriages, like fairly typical of what you'd expect of the time. Latimer, too, had a lot of influence because he's part of the Neville family, which is a huge, powerful, influential family in the north of England. He has all these great connections. Um, He's the eldest of a family of 15. So there's this whole big, weird family to deal with. Um, actually, in Linda Porter's biography, she mentions that they all they kind of get into scrapes and they fight a lot. So now Catherine's having to deal with this big extended family, one of whom apparently dabbled in the occult in order to see if Latimer himself would die and then leave his brother the title. So I love that consulting. He's <laughs> consulting with wizards. This is the kind of thing that Catherine's having to deal with now. She's got wizards. She's got lunacy. She's got it all. She's experienced. She's, she's been around. That's but, why um, when she gets to Henry, nothing phases her. She's like, all right. <laughs> right. But I mean, otherwise, like you said, this is a very conventional marriage because Latimer seems like one of those people who is just a very straight guy. You know, he is a soldier. He went on Henry's French campaign in 1513 where he was knighted. Uh, so, you know, he was a good soldier. He doesn't seem to have been too interested in it, though. It was kind of he went because of duty, because he had to, not because he was particularly interested in it. And he seems to be kind of like a long suffering lord of the manor. Like there are a lot of financial issues going on with all of his lands that he had to manage. And his his eldest son and the heir to his title seems to have kind of been a pain in the butt. So it just he just seems like one of those men who just has the weight of the world on his shoulders and he's just frazzled all of the time because there's so much to do he gives me proper dad vibes of like yeah you know, exactly he's, he's like, like middle-aged man like <laughs> i just have too much to deal with and here's here's catherine this young 22 year old like oh this will be great i get my own estate to run i have a job <laughs> yeah i could just see her just saying how was your day dear and he's like I don't want to talk about it. Everything's fine. <laughs> She's like, good, because we need some more money. And then he just put his head, head, head in the hands like, oh, God. That being said, there does seem to be a lot of affection between them. I mean, it's, it's sort of guessed that he married her to be more of a companion and to be a mother to his children. So I don't know how often they were spending quality time together. I catch my drift. But there was a kind of respect and affection there because after he died, not to jump ahead too much, but after he died, Catherine kept his New Testament, um, his personal Bible. No, I was just going to say that's so sweet. I think that's very, we don't get sentimental Catherine very often. But they went through a lot together. Um, It it kind of makes sense because if you want more on... all of this, go listen to the Pilgrimage of Grace episode. We talk a lot about Latimer and his misadventures with the Pilgrimage of Grace and religion. But just for a recap now, Latimer was very religiously conservative. Like so many in the north of England, he preferred the institutionalized Catholic Church all over all the reform that's going on. And this includes not being a huge fan of Anne Boleyn. 
So even though he was at court and he didn't necessarily go against the grain, like he didn't make a ton of his oppositions known, he personally was much more invested in traditional conservative faith. Catherine, of course, is known for being a reformer, so we don't know when that necessarily began. But by association with her husband, she was known as being part of this very conservative faction. And this comes back to bite them in the butt, because not only during the Pilgrimage of Grace, but during an earlier uprising, the Lincolnshire Rebellion, the Latimers are in the, at the center of the conflict. We talked about how in during the Pilgrimage of Grace, Latimer was basically held hostage, um, and, and his family too. It was sort of a join us or we kill your family kind of situation. Catherine would have gone through a lot of very hard times with this man, and he was clearly very he was trying to protect his family as much as possible. I can see, though, how other than these sort of very violent events, Catherine might have been kind of bored in this existence. Um, she's she's up north, kind of in the middle of nowhere. She's the lady of the manor, sure, and she has the responsibility of keeping the household together. And she's supervising the education of her stepchildren, especially her stepdaughter, Margaret, who becomes very they become very close. But this is somebody who was raised around court, who is extremely intelligent. I mean, she understands four languages. She's very well read. She's probably beginning to develop her interest in theology, given that she's so passionate about it. I can just see how being stuck in this country manor in the middle of nowhere would be really boring, especially when you know that her family, her two siblings, William and Anne, are at the epicenter of court. They're getting to deal with politics and see all of this stuff firsthand. And they're up on all the latest fashions, which is another thing Catherine's super interested in. They're getting to experience all this culture. And Catherine's over here dealing with uprisings and this kind of like fussy old man and all the, you know, her stepson who apparently is awful. I, I, I can just see how, however comfortable the existence is, she's not thriving. Country, country life isn't for everybody and, and living, like you say, on a, on a manor isn't for everybody. Uh, she, she needs that excitement. She needs to be intellectually stimulated and she needs to be surrounded by like-minded people. I think she craves London, but might not necessarily know that's what she craves until, you know, she gets there and kind of gets herself into the heart of it. So the pilgrimage of Grace then is kind of a double-edged sword for her because on the one hand, her reputation as Lady Latimer, the wife of this, maybe he's a traitor, maybe he's not, we don't know. It does has the potential to compromise her. So that's not great. But what it means is that they actually start to spend a lot more time in London. So Catherine gets to be reunited with her family, first of all, which must have been lovely for her. But while her husband is attending Parliament, he's doing a lot of work to regain some of his social standing and have people trust him again. Like if he's there and he's visible, we know that he's not plotting rebellions in Yorkshire, right? Catherine starts to become part of court again. She has a reason for being in London. She has all these connections in London now. And she starts to figure out, as you said, this is where I belong. This is where I need to be. Th these connections are getting her places because her brother is becoming a favorite of Henry VIII. He's been recently ennobled himself. He's Baron Parr now, so he knows a lot of good people. And then her sister is actually serving in the households of queens. So her sister Anne 
is a maid of honor to both Anne of Cleves and Catherine Howard. So it's not like she's just hanging out kind of on the fringes. She's very well connected with all of the major players that we've been talking about on this podcast. And probably the most important one for her is that her brother is very good friends with the Seymour brothers, the brothers of the late Queen Jane, whose influence at court is very heavy. And she gets to know Thomas Seymour very well during this period. And as we know, um, she, she likes what she sees there. The next phase of Catherine's life really begins in the winter of 1542. Uh, she is with her husband in London because he's there attending the parliament and he gets sick. Uh, he is sick enough to write a will. So we can assume then that Catherine is by his side, tending to him as he gets worse and worse and worse. And he ends up dying in early 1543. For the second time in her life, she is now a widow. And now she's at a bit of a crossroads, just like we talked about when her first husband died. She's in this kind of limbo period because she's no longer anyone's wife. She is the widow of a very well-connected man, and now her stepson has the title. And technically, the family doesn't owe her anything, so she's just Lady Latimer. But luckily for her, she and her husband, there was enough affection there, and he was well enough established that he leaves her quite a bit of money and position to work with. He gives her land and manners and the profits from them. She has enough money now to potentially stay in London as she wants to. She doesn't want to have to go back to the north of England to live on one of these manors and just have a quiet existence there. Giving her the money allows her to become a woman of means. I mean, she's not absurdly wealthy, but she has enough to go on and she has enough to give her a kind of independence that she didn't have the first time she was widowed. It's slightly different, not only because she has money, but because she is slightly older and her family is that much better connected that if she were to choose not to remarry, nobody's going to be looking at her and whispering in dark corners about what is she doing with herself? She's ruining herself, you know. And, you know, she's still very much to use the Tudor phrase of childbearing age. And just as she has freedom to not marry if she chooses because she has enough to live on from her husband's will, she also has the freedom to do what she wants in terms of if she did want to get married again, she doesn't have to necessarily marry the man her mother tells her to. She can follow her own heart. And we know that her own heart tended very much towards Thomas Seymour. We know, of course, that he ends up becoming her fourth husband. But for now, there's not as much political scheming going on. Like Thomas Seymour has the reputation of being a social climber, someone who's very ambitious and maybe even a bit of a womanizer. But it does seem that they actually did fall in love with each other. Like this is a legitimate love story. And based on Catherine's movements around court and the fact that her brother was very well connected with the Seymour family, it just suggests that they knew each other very well and they had that well-established friendship that now is becoming romantic. With Thomas Seymour, there's often that 
reputation that goes along with him um, it's not necessarily a nice one but I think all you need to do is look at how she writes about him and this is after Henry dies so you know it's a little bit later down the line but you know that affection has to start somewhere that that, that doesn't just appear overnight you know with the death of your husband and it seems like this is going to be a nice conclusion to Catherine's story because two of her husbands are gone and however much respect she had for them um, especially Latimer who she spent more time with she never wanted to marry either of them. And now finally, she's genuinely fallen in love with the man and she's well placed to just be able to marry him. And like you said, there is love and actually like, she's choosing him on her own because she loves him. She writes to him that as truly as God is God, my mind was fully bent the other time I was at liberty to marry you before any man I know. Not only is this lovely and romantic, but it makes her mind very clear. Absolutely. And we don't get that very often. I like the fact that we know exactly what she was thinking, because I know there's a lot of time with, with history that we have to kind of fill in the gaps. You know, if we talk about the letters that um, Henry and Anne Boleyn shared, we know what Henry said. We have to infer the other side. So it's nice that we have this very clear, like, writing down, like, no, I... I I love you and I kind of want to be with you. Yeah, usually we're dealing with the queens being very pragmatic and political, and it's not very often that we actually get to see the deeper emotional side of them. And through this, we know that Catherine, as as any human it would be, was a very emotional person who felt a very deep love for this man and finally kind of saw light on the horizon in terms of, I can do something for myself now. It just, it all seems perfect. It all seems like happily ever after. And then she finds out that she has caught the eye of a, a certain eligible bachelor at court. Pray tell, Kate, who is this eligible man? He's he's so like, I just, I, I don't know who it could possibly be. Um, Yeah, Henry, um, Henry VIII, our old friend, is, has been a widower for about a year after, you know, he, um, he executed his other wife and is looking for a replacement for said wife that he executed, and his eye is drawn towards Catherine. Henry is somebody who I think, as we've said a thousand times, especially in this series, he's a very romantic person, and I think he likes having a wife. He likes having the image of a king and a queen together, and he likes having a companion, a, a bedfellow, if you want to go there. He just, he likes, he likes being married. And now the fact that he's been single for a year, he's getting kind of antsy again and he wants to remarry. He's been looking through the ladies at court and finally he's landed on Catherine and he's decided that Catherine is the one. Now, as we've done a couple of times, I kind of want to check in with Henry and see where he is at this stage in his life and uh, what Catherine was dealing with in terms of her courtship. <laughs> I just like how we do a Henry wellness check every so often. It's a bit like... Are you doing all right? Are you, are you okay? He's not. He's not though. He's not he's, doing he's all not right the, or no, okay. No, he's not. No, <laughs> he's on the struggle bus. He is. He's in his early fifties at this point, though that's not old to us by any of means. That's pretty advanced years in the Tudor era. And not only this, but he's in really poor health. So he, again, had hurt his leg some years before, and this caused this horrific injury that has never quite healed. In fact, it's uh, reopened every once in a while because they think that's the way to heal it. And it causes him excruciating pain. So he's in pain all the time. And he's at the point now where he can barely walk on this leg and he actually has to use a cane a lot of the time. 
because of this, doesn't have a ton of mobility and he is gaining a ton of weight now to the point where he is morbidly obese and it's starting to cause a lot of his health issues. Not only that, but um, his eyesight is deteriorating. He's having to wear uh, little spectacles now. So he's just, he's falling apart and very cranky. So Catherine gets the, uh, the pleasure of having to deal with this iteration of Henry. I don't envy her, if I'm completely honest. Like, no. she, gets, she gets the classic like, image that we have of Henry VIII, that tyrant that he has become. Yeah, full, I was and... about to say, full tyrant mode. Like, he just seems like a very miserable person who is falling apart, especially considering the fact that he is, um, he's kind of wounded from all the drama with Catherine Howard. Yeah. Like we said in a previous episode, he's not used to the surprises being sprung on him. So the fact that Catherine was not faithful to him I think came as a real shock and he had a year to kind of stew on the fact. So this is the sort of bitter end of life Henry that is now interested in Catherine Parr. And we don't know exactly when he decides that he's going to start, quote, courting her or he starts to show interest in her at court. But we know that once he figures out that she is the one that he wants, he's pretty settled on her. And it's kind of easy to see. I mean, we've said this before, but Henry is looking for somebody now who is a little bit not more mature, uh, not so much in age, because Catherine's only like 30. She is 30 at this point. So not mature in age, but mature in personality. Catherine is very equally matched with him in terms of um, her intellect. She, you know, speaks four languages. She's very well read. She is interested in all the same things that he is, like uh fashion and music and reading and theology and all of this stuff. So it makes sense that he would be attracted to her personality uh, from all accounts and from her portraits. She's very good looking too. So he, you can see that he would be physically attracted to her. And she has experience with marriage. I mean, she's been married twice. He's been married five times. So she has the maturity of, you know, she's not a Catherine Howard. She's not a teenager. She knows what to get into. She's very loyal. It seems like she's kind of perfectly matched for him in that way. And we know that once he decides, like he clearly thought about it, and once he decides that this is the next Queen of England, he actually takes the kind of romantic approach and he does start to court her for all intents and purposes. He visits her home. She's living in London by the Charter House, just to give you an idea of where her London residence is. She's at court a lot. He's starting to promote her family. So like he was already tight with William Parr, but now William Parr is starting to get all these like extra appointments and everything. So he's saying like, look, I could be good to your family. Like, aren't I great? Don't you want to marry me? And he finally makes a formal proposal sometime in the spring of 1543. So like Linda Porter says maybe in April-ish, uh, but no later. And of course, we know that she's, you know, recently widowed at this point because Latimer had only died in you know, the beginning of 1543. And now that she thinks she's finally free to follow her heart and Thomas Seymour is on the scene, suddenly the, they're hitting the brakes and they're like, oh, crap. And you really have to feel for her at this point. Like, we're back at a cross. And I think we said it so many times in this episode, you know, if her life was just to finish at certain points, it would have been so happy. And I don't think she was necessarily 100% unhappy with Henry all of the time. Life has a habit of getting in Catherine's way, I think. It's interesting, though, her 
decision-making process around this time. And this is something that we're lucky to know too, because she tells Thomas later on what she was kind of thinking at the time. Henry is, well, not Henry, but the, the king, you know, the, the figurehead, the king, is a hard person to say no to, because even if he's somebody who's now killed two of his wives and has this reputation for not being a great husband, the benefits of marrying him are still very high. So Catherine's having to weigh all of these things. Like, he's already promoting her family. He could further promote them. This could be the making of the Parr family, as it was the making of the Boleyns and the Seymours before. Like, you know, your family rises with you, and this is the best possible way for the Parr family to gain influence. So there's that. But then also, too, Catherine would be well-established at court. She would have a lot of money. She'll probably outlive Henry. She's pretty aware of the fact that he's a lot older and unhealthy. So she will probably be his widow. And if you're going to be a widow, you want to be the Dowager Queen of England, right? Because you get security out the wazoo. The influence, too, um, she, she gains a platform, right? So not only for her own personal intellectual interests, but we have to speculate for her religious interests. She thinks that maybe it is her calling to further her religion, and if she can do it from a platform, this is a great one for it. In the end, she kind of realizes that this is something that she has to do, and she tells Thomas in a later letter when they're kind of reminiscing about their courtship, Howbeit God withstood my will therein most vehemently for a time, and through his grace and goodness made that possible which seemeth to me most impossible that was made me to renounce utterly mine own will and follow his will most willingly. To translate, she's basically saying that even though my mind was made up and I wanted to marry you, Thomas, I suddenly had to realize that God had this plan for me all along, and who am I to not go along with it? Who am I to put my own interests before God's? I think that's so sad. Like the language that obviously that she uses to write it in just makes it even sadder that, you know, she was just like, I'm, I'm there, I'm ready, but how do you say no to this? Like you're saying, like that is a big choice to make, I think, to choose to be, like if you've got a love like the one that they had that I think was quite big, to then have to choose to walk away from that is a lot. And you can see her trying to justify it to herself. Like she knows that she doesn't have much of a choice here. Like, what are you, are you going to say no to the king and then still be around at court? Like, it's just, it's it's not going to work out well. And it's probably also, like, it was probably common knowledge that she and Thomas had a thing going on because Thomas was a fairly, like, public figure. He was a well-known, in a well-known role. This idea of a love triangle seems to have only spurred Henry on. I mean, think about, like, when he was courting Anne Boleyn and she had all these other admirers that he kind of, like, competed with. And it only made him that much more interested in her. The same thing kind of goes here is that he knew that Thomas was also interested, so he played up his affection that much more. So she knows that having another suitor is doing nothing to deter Henry. I mean, if anything, it's making it worse. The game of courtly love is one that Henry loves, and it's a really disgusting phrase. I hate it so much, but he loves the chase. He does the challenge of it. Yeah. it's Knowing that he'll win in the end. Yes, because who's going to say no to him? He's actually pretty patient in waiting for Catherine. And it seems to be that she isn't much, as much deliberating. Like, she knows that she has to say yes. She's kind of just procrastinating the decision. And he's 
he's waiting for her answer like it's it's gonna be a surprise like what will she say it's just funny that like i remember seeing a play once where Catherine is actively deliberating between like which man will i choose and it's it's not that at all she's choosing henry she knows she has to choose henry it's just figuring out like when can I, when do i actually sign away my freedom and my life here how long how long do i have I almost like the idea of her thinking, maybe if I just keep saying, I'm thinking about it, I'm thinking about it, maybe he'll die, and then I, and then I won't have to give him an answer, and then it'll be okay. And then, and then, like, you know, if he does die, then I, I can get away with just being the woman that he loved at the end, and everything will be fine, and nobody's feelings will get hurt, I'll keep my head. And I, I like the idea of her being like, how far can I wait? How long can I wait this out? The other complication, though, is that I think Henry definitely knows that Thomas Seymour is the other contender for Catherine's hand because suddenly um, Thomas's diplomatic career takes off and uh, he's getting a lot of appointments abroad. Like there's um, talk of him going to the Netherlands. There's talk of him going to Brussels. Um, and it's like, wow, very, very well timed. <laughs> I mean, that couldn't possibly be anything more than bad timing and a, know, know, just a coincidence. deteriorating. Thomas is a skilled negotiator. He, he has is. to go. We need him over there. He cannot possibly be here <laughs> to marry you. He's abandoning you, see? Um, see, he doesn't love you. I wouldn't leave you like that. Like, <laughs> I would sail yeah. across the sea away from you. So in the end, Catherine makes this non-decision and she accepts Henry's proposal and she becomes his betrothed. Probably, like I said, no later than April 1543. They don't get married until the summer. They don't get married until July. However much you can sort of be triumphant of like, now she's the queen. And in terms of intellect, she's probably one of the most qualified queens of England that anyone had ever seen. But at the same time, it's not an ideal situation because the love of her life has gone away now. If we learn anything from Catherine's early life before she became queen, so the first 30 years of her life, I think it's just that she's such a creature of duty. Um, you know, she she's somebody who is loyal and she does what she's told in terms of marrying these two other men who her family tells her to marry. She's a very loyal wife to them both. She clearly serves them well. Um, I mean, Latimer leaves her a ton of property and money in his will. So we know that there was a partnership and an affection there. She's probably you know that wasn't necessarily a marriage she probably wanted for herself but she made the most out of it she did what she had to do she got a couple stepchildren out of it who she you know was close to later so it just makes sense then that when confronted with the idea of becoming queen of england she saw it as just another duty she was something that she has to do something that's for the best for the country and for her family puts her personal desires to one side and takes that step forward it just it says so much of her character and her strength that this is her, her story. Yeah, but series three, that's, that's, get it, that's history. <laughs> I'd hear first, but <laughs> <laughs>
Uh, no, I liked this though. This has been fun. I like the fact that we've um, gotten a chance to look at our queens before they became queens. It's quite an unconventional way of looking at them because, like when we first started this, we said we we interact with them when they're they're queens or wives of Henry VIII, or you know we look at their downfalls and then we that's it, job's done. When we first started this, or when at least when we first settled on the idea of the series, it was for me at least a much more of a response to things that I heard from people in my life, like, you know, friends and family who are generous enough to listen to our podcast were like, yeah, you know, it's great, the Reformation and um, learning about their badges and everything, but who are they? You know, like, and it seems so trivial to us maybe because we have, quote, known them for so long that talking about their birth dates and where they were born and all of this other stuff, um, I don't know, maybe seems like a waste of time to us sometimes. Like, it's just so obvious to us that maybe we don't think about it. But then actually in doing research for it, you find all of these stories and you learn so much about them as people that it's like, of course, why didn't we, why didn't we start with this? Like, it just, it seems so obvious now that we would talk about all of these things and really get to know them as people where they started that um, I am indebted to all those people for pointing out that um, we, we don't know anything about them. Let, let's find out about them. You know, if you have ever got any ideas or suggestions and, and you're, you know, you've become a, a regular listener or you're just finding us, let us know. Unlike the last series, we actually know what we're doing next. We're not going to have to kind of keep you hanging for what, four months. <laughs> Well, there was a lot of there was a lot of ideas that went onto a page for the last series. Like, we could do this one. Yeah. We could do this one. Until finally, I was like, "Yeah, enough people have been asking me when Anne Boleyn was born. We need to just get that out of the way." <laughs> but we took from that list that we had before um, of all of these ideas for themes for this future series, and we chose the one that we were most excited about. And hopefully, you get excited for it too. So. Happy to announce that the next series, which will be coming to you probably sometime this summer, don't want to commit to a, a date, but it will be sometime this summer, we're going to be talking about motherhood. Motherhood was the pressure that they all face. Um, yeah, we can do the history of childbirth itself, um, because yeah. it's, it's something, like you said, that they have in common with, with the majority of women of the time is this natural fear and awe of childbirth and the actual process of giving birth. It gets really weird for noble women, though, so we'll walk you through all of that. Um, I'm buzzing. But then also the um, the social history of, like, how did they navigate actually raising their children? And like you said, they all come at it from different ways. And, you know, having a child meant something different to Catherine of Aragon than it did to Anne Boleyn or Jane Seymour. And then having stepchildren the last three meant something completely different. So we're going to be dissecting all of that. And hopefully it won't just be about the actual act of giving birth. It will be about the larger social implications and then how all of these women took on the role in different ways. So, you know, educating the children and raising them, but also like the pressures of conceiving a child, all of that, all of that. I mean, in the meantime, we have some specials in the pipeline, which are very exciting. We do. Are shall not be revealed just yet so look out for those in between now and uh, series four i know um can tell you though <laughs> that one of the specials is very precisely timed and it will be coming at you in may 
those of you who are well acquainted with the British Royals probably know why it's coming in May. <laughs> what could it possibly be? Hmm. In the meantime, you can follow us on social media. We're on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, and we'd love to hear from you. So please leave a review on your favorite podcast app. Long live the Queens.